Well, for those of you joining us tonight, maybe for the first time, we have been studying the book of Galatians. And uh, Paul has been really just going section after section, challenging the Judaizers. The Judaizers who claimed to be Christian brothers, but as we saw last week, Paul referred to them as false brothers. And why were they false, even though they confessed Christ? Because they were believing in a Christ plus something else, salvation. That Christ wasn't enough. That Christ is not satisfactory enough, or sufficient, I should say, for salvation. And you need to add the law, and specifically circumcision, to Christ in order to be saved. And as Paul said, that is no gospel at all. Uh, and so he's been laying the foundation on this thought, and it very much applies to us today, because it is not unusual. I won't say it's common, but I won't say it's rare either, that you talk to somebody uh, in a church somewhere and ask them about their hope of salvation and, and ask them for a Christian testimony, and they'll say, well, yeah, I'm saved. Well, Tell me about your testimony. Well, um, I was baptized when I was nine, my mama said. Uh, okay, what's that mean? Uh, I was baptized. Well, what do you mean by that? I joined the church and talked to the preacher. Or they'll go on and on and on, and they cannot even really give a testimony of Christ. Uh, or people today have the mentality, some people you talk to, that I'm going to try to do my very best and then Christ did his best and when I get to heaven, those two will be added together and God will accept me. Is that correct? No. It's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the book of Galatians, even though we don't deal with issues of circumcision today, we very much deal with our own little things that people think they need Christ plus whatever it is in their life. Fill in the blank. And again, that's not the gospel. Now, I mentioned a couple of books to you. If you really want to dig in uh, to Galatians, one of the very best commentaries you can ever find, I think, on the book of Galatians fairly recent one, by one of your Southern Baptist New Testament scholars at Southern Seminary, Tom Schreiner, in the uh, Zondervan, Zondervan Exegetical Commentary Series. Outstanding commentary. Uh, probably if I had to rely on just one, that would be it. Although there's a lot of good ones. Leon Morris, John R.W. Stott, uh, Philip Ryken, number of great commentaries, but if you want to just add one to your library, and folks, Christians ought to add good books like this to their library. It'll help you in your study of the Bible. So I commend that one to you. Well, tonight, let's pick up in Galatians 2, and we're going to start in verse 11, and we're going to talk about riding the gospel train. Riding the gospel train. We're in verse 11 of chapter 2. So find that, if you would please, and we're going to read down through verse 21. It says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, 
I opposed him to his face because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. John MacArthur writes, When Cain offered his sacrifice of grain to the Lord, he sinned both by disobediently bringing the wrong kind of offering and by offering it in the wrong spirit. Rather than bringing an animal sacrifice as God had obviously commanded, he brought the fruit of his own labor, proudly supposing that this offering of disobedience was just as acceptable to God as the one that God himself had prescribed. His was the first act of works righteousness, the forerunner of every such act since his time. Every person of every era who has tried to come to God on the basis of his own merits and works or by some humanly designed religious prescriptions has followed in the unbelieving, grace-rejecting steps of Cain. By rejecting God's prescribed animal sacrifice, Cain rejected God's provision of substitutionary salvation in his son toward which that blood offering pointed. And he goes on to say, since the time of Cain and Abel, the two divergent lines of works and faith have characterized man's religious life. Now, folks, we know that when Jesus was born, the majority of Israelites had perverted the message of the Old Testament. Because as we've seen, the Old Testament never taught 
that the law justified a man. And Paul is repeatedly going to use the example of Abraham that 430 years before the law was even given, Genesis 15 says he believed God and God credited it unto him as righteousness. That should have been a testimony to the Jews that salvation was not through the keeping of the law. The law was to show man how he was supposed to live. It was to give the divine standard and it was also to reveal man's utter inability. It would be like a mirror looking in the mirror. I've told you before, you get up in the morning and your hair's tasseled and you look in the mirror. The mirror doesn't fix your hair for you or you ladies. The mirror doesn't put on your makeup for you, but the mirror exposes the flaws that you then want to give attention to. Well, that's what the law does. It exposes our sins. It doesn't remedy our sins. The law should drive man to the grace of God. And so there's not two ways of salvation in the Bible. And this is where a lot of people misunderstand their Bible. They say the Old Testament prescribes salvation through the keeping of the law, and the New Testament prescribes salvation uh, by grace through faith in Christ. But the fact of the matter is that salvation has always been by grace through faith. The Old Testament pointed to the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And every one of those sacrifices was a snapshot pointing the people to that perfect sacrifice that God would one day send. And the New Testament then announces the arrival of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we know that the Jews of Jesus' day had perverted this. The rabbis had even added all kinds of traditions that the, that the people were supposed to abide by in order to be right with God. And oftentimes they elevated their commentary writings and, and their traditions, sometimes not just equal with Scripture, but sometimes they would even give preference to their own writings. Well, the Judaizers came out of the ranks of these legalistic Jews claiming to follow Christ on the one hand, but also claiming that you had to add Moses to Christ. You had to add law to grace in order to be saved. That's what the Judaizers were preaching. As I pointed out to you, the Judaizers preached a Jesus plus law salvation, specifically circumcision, uh, Jesus plus circumcision uh, salvation. And that's why Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 referred to them, referred to the Judaizers as dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision. He didn't mince words, did he? No person of his day had more reason to boast of his Jewish heritage than the Apostle Paul. You know, in Philippians 3, he gives his resume of all the good things. If he wanted to, if he wanted to put a resume forth that 
somebody could be proud of before God, Paul's, Paul's basically saying, hey, I got a resume that would exceed everybody else's. But what's he conclude? These things that were gained to me, I now count as rubbish for the sake of Christ. Now, in the second half of chapter 2, Paul is still defending his apostleship and still defending the gospel that he preaches. The Judaizers, remember, had been trying to say that Paul wasn't a true apostle and that the message that the apostles preached and the message that Paul preached were different messages. They were trying to say that Paul's gospel minus the law was different from the message the other apostles were preaching. And Paul's indicated to them he's received his gospel from, from God, not man. And in addition to that, he's traveled up to Jerusalem to meet with the other apostles. And he's found that the other apostles, men like Peter and James and John, added nothing to his gospel, and they were preaching the very same message that Paul was, because there is only one gospel. And Peter and James and John and the other apostles extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. And they encouraged him to go to the Gentiles with the message of grace. And they would go to the Jews with that same message of grace. And so again, the Judaizers are flat out wrong in all of their accusations against Paul. Now, in this section of chapter 2, Paul's going to even show how he withstood Peter on one occasion. First thing I want you to see tonight from verses 11 to 13 is a case of conviction without courage. A case of conviction without courage. John Stott says that this is without a doubt one of the most tense and dramatic episodes in the New Testament. Because here are two leading apostles of Christ who come face to face in open conflict. As Stott reminds us, we know that Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul both are genuine Christians. And furthermore, they're both apostles. They're the two key figures in the book of Acts. The first half of Acts, oh, the human, human characters, that is, in the book of Acts, the first half of the book of Acts concentrates on the ministry of Simon Peter. The second half, beginning specifically in Acts 13, now Paul's conversions in Acts 9, but his missionary activity that begins in chapter 13, Paul's the main figure of the second half of the book of Acts. So two key figures. And furthermore, it's not that Peter denied the gospel in his teaching. His teaching was not the issue. It was his conduct on this one particular occasion. In fact, if you go back and read in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 10, you'd find that God had taught Peter a very valuable lesson, didn't he? He gave Peter that vision of that sheep being let down and all kinds of animals, clean and unclean in it. And in response to that vision, Peter learned that he was supposed to go to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, 
a Roman centurion. And when he got to the home of Cornelius, Simon Peter said, Truly I understand now that God shows no partiality. In Acts 11, when Peter went up to Jerusalem after being with Cornelius, he had to defend his actions to the Jewish believers. They got all up in his face because he went to the home of a Gentile. And so Peter had to explain what all happened to Cornelius and everybody that Cornelius had gathered there. And how the Holy Spirit, when they believed on Jesus, the Holy Spirit fell on them just like it had on the apostles and the Jews back on the day of Pentecost. And so the Bible says in Acts 11, when they heard Simon Peter's explanation, they quieted down with their criticism, and instead they glorified God, and they concluded that God had granted salvation to the Gentiles as well without any demands of the law being added. And so Peter himself knows in his own heart, in his own experience, that God has fully accepted the Gentiles and saved them on the same basis that he saved Jews. It is through faith in Christ, nothing else added in. Now between Acts 10 and Acts 11, we know that Paul and Barnabas have landed down at Antioch, and Antioch now becomes ground zero for the missionary activity of the church. Sort of the base of operations in the book of Acts of missions kind of shifts from the Jerusalem church to the church at Antioch. And it was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. So Antioch kind of becomes the new home base for the gospel going to the nations. And so now Peter has gone over to Antioch to fellowship with believers there and to fellowship with Paul and Barnabas. Folks, these were happy days for the church. These were days of celebration. These were vibrant days as they were witnessing how God was adding to the church daily. And here's Jews and Gentiles fellowshipping together, eating together, sharing fried chicken and banana pudding together, and partaking of the Lord's Supper together. But then, we're told here, certain men came from James. Now folks, this does not mean that they had James's blessing or that they came in James' authority. They just claimed it. They posed to be delegates from James. But we know that James didn't agree with the Judaizers either. We know James agreed with the Apostle Paul. Because in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, it was James who spoke up and issued the statement that really became the judgment of the Jerusalem Council. James says, let's not put any burden on the Gentiles other than faith in Christ. 
And so evidently here in verse 12 of chapter 2, these Judaizers are claiming to have James's backing when in reality they don't. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Mm-hmm. But until these people showed up in verse 12, here again, we know what Peter's doing. What's Peter doing? He's sharing his banana pudding with Gentiles. He's dipping out of the same dish as Gentiles. And the tense in verse 12 is significant, saying that Peter was eating with them. He was constantly, he was continually eating with the Gentiles. But then once the Judaizers showed up, Peter took his bowl of banana pudding and his chicken leg and he moved over to the other side of the room, away from the Gentiles. Why did he do this? Did he agree with the Judaizers? No. Peter knew the gospel. We know from what Peter has said and written, he didn't agree with the theology of the Judaizers, but he allowed them to intimidate him. He's responding to this pressure group. And at this point, he kind of reminds you of the old Peter before Pentecost who could sometimes kind of vacillate a little bit. Peter knew what he ought to be doing, but he didn't do it. He succumbed to pressure. Now, folks, don't we do some of that today at times? Sure we do. Oftentimes, we know the right thing to do. We just don't do it. We might allow ourselves to be intimidated by certain people or groups. Well, second thing I want you to see, a cataclysmic clash. Verse 11 and verse 14. Notice what happened as a result. Paul noticed that the other Jewish believers saw what Peter was doing and they followed Peter's lead. So just like Peter had pulled back from the Gentiles, they followed Peter's example and they pulled back from the Gentiles too. And what really concerned Paul, or what probably really hurt him the most, was to see that even Barnabas, his missionary companion in his first missionary journeys, Barnabas was also following Simon Peter's example. And so Paul speaks up and he calls it what it is. It's hypocrisy. Now, originally... To be a hypocrite in Greek background just meant you were a talented actor. You could wear more than one face in a a Greek play. You could be one character in one act of a play and another character in another act. You were a hypocrite. It was a good thing. You were talented. But then by the New Testament days, the word hypocrite came to mean something negative. Somebody two-faced. 
Here is Peter. He knew that a man is not justified by the law. He knew that a man's not justified by circumcision. God had taught him that. And then Peter's also, not only did God teach him that at the home of Cornelius, Peter's now fellowshipping with Gentiles at Antioch. But now that these Judaizers have come in, he's acting totally contrary to what he knew was the right thing. And what made it so bad was that he was a leader in the church with such an important influence. Leaders are more accountable, right? That's why James says in James 3, let not many of us be teachers, knowing that we're going to receive the greater judgment. So here was a church in danger of letting legalism creep in which would destroy the gospel. In verse 13, Paul says, I saw what they were doing, and it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so back in verse 11, Paul says what? I opposed Peter to his face. Now, did Paul do this simply because he couldn't control his temper? Paul somebody that was just always ready for a good fight? No. Paul says he did what he did here. Why? Because the truth of the gospel was at stake. Folks, this was a public scandal that could have run the risk of changing the church forever, or at least for a long, long time. Had the church drifted back into a legalism mindset, and a mindset that said you got to add law to grace, you got to add law to Christ, the truth of the gospel would have been compromised. It would have been at stake. So twice in this chapter, you'll notice Paul appeals to the truth of the gospel. What is the truth of the gospel? Again, as John R. W. Stock writes, it is the good news that we sinners, guilty and under the righteous judgment of a holy God, may be pardoned and accepted by His sheer grace his free and unmerited favor on the ground of his son's death and not for any works or merits of our own. More briefly, the truth of the gospel is the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's what was at stake here. And Peter's act of what he was doing here was public. So remember what Paul said about this public and private matters in 1 Timothy? Paul admonished Timothy that when somebody commits a public sin that leads others astray, they need to be publicly rebuked. Private matters between two believers, keep it private. But public matters involving people being led astray, Paul tells Timothy to deal with it publicly. 
Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we're to be salt and light. And, and you know, that can work in a positive more than negative. It's possible to influence people in the right direction. It's also possible to influence people in the wrong direction. And so Paul deals with this publicly because Peter has made it a public matter. What's this say about the modern day church? We'll avoid confrontation at all costs, won't we? Today, we'll even allow sin to go on. We don't want to ruffle feathers or something like that. And we'll put peace above truth. But peace is supposed to grow out of truth. A peace that is gained from avoiding the truth will eventually blow up in your face. Just look at everything today that the church across the nation and the world is compromising instead of taking a stand on. Shame on us. Scott, can I just, since you mentioned uh, <clears throat> John MacArthur earlier, back during, uh, what was it, the latter part of last year, early this year and so forth, he and his church went to war with the city of Los Angeles yep. over a parking lot. Yeah. And he stood his ground. Yeah. And, and won. And won. Yeah. That's the important thing. Sure. They were going to choke the church off by all of a sudden eliminating about 4,000 parking spaces. Sure. And he won. They never missed a church service or anything else of that nature. And that should serve as a constant reminder in our modern day yeah. to stand up against mess like that. Sure. Now Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. is suing that local government because of the crackdowns on churches during COVID last year that were more stringent than crackdowns on everybody else. So, Cap yeah. so Capitol Hill is now launching a lawsuit too. But you know, when you know, just like Christians seeing Christianity as a license to sin, that's wrong. A Christianity that mixes legalism in is wrong too. But again, we do some of that today, don't we? Here's a group in the church that says, oh, you got to do this or that. Here's my checklist of what it means to be a good little Christian boy or girl. You know, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. This is my little checklist. And when we get around them, we'll say, yeah, you know, that's my checklist too. But then we might get around another group who has another kind of checklist. And then we try to blend in with that group too, right? Folks, instead of trying to blend in with groups, just stand for the truth of the gospel and be done with it. Just stand for the truth of the gospel. If you do that, you don't have to try to be a man pleaser. Now, let's keep in mind, though, what the Judaizers were doing. What they were doing was promoting more than simply their preferences. We're not talking about non-essentials here, preferences that make up non-essentials. That's not what they were doing. 
They were trying to introduce, again, a Jesus plus something else salvation. They were compromising and attacking an essential of the gospel. And that's what made them so dangerous. And again, that's what explains Paul's stance here. He wasn't about to let this matter go by without a challenge. It didn't matter that it was Peter or not. He's not out to embarrass Peter. He's simply out to protect sound doctrine. And so he confronts Peter on his hypocrisy. He says, here you have come in among us and you're eating the stuff that Gentiles eat. You're not obeying the Jewish dietary codes. And now then, why are you trying to force Gentiles to live like Jews? To be circumcised and obey the law. And you've not even been living that way among the Gentiles at Antioch. He's wanting Peter to see how inconsistent Peter is being. Well, I'm putting him in a position too. He can save face by answering the question. Sure, sure. Yeah. Two less games. Yep. You know, again, though, we can be inconsistent. I, I once knew of a Christian. Now, this is a non-essential issue, and what Judaizers were doing was essential. That's why it was so bad. I, I once knew of a Christian, though. He would not dare be caught alive going to a public movie theater. He wouldn't be caught alive doing that. He'd wait for that movie to come out on video, and he'd go down to the video <laughs> rental store and he'd buy that same movie. I'm serious. That's how inconsistent we can be sometimes, right? But again, what made Peter's transgression so bad here was he was violating an essential of the faith. Not just a preference, but an essential. Well, third thing I want you to see. An appeal to common sense. An appeal to common sense. Beginning in verse 15, going all the way down through verse 21, uh, there's a word that shows up for the first time in Galatians. What word is it? The word justified. Paul, first of all, appeals to themselves, Peter and Paul, and the other Jews who were following Peter's example and withdrawing from the Gentiles, he says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet, what have we learned? We've learned that salvation does not come through the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And boy, that was a hard lesson for some of the Jews to learn, wasn't it? But Paul is saying, we learned that lesson. Paul learned it when God got a hold of him on the road to Damascus and converted him. Paul had finally seen Christ and understood that Christ and Christ alone is the way of salvation. They come to the realization that by works of the law, no one will be justified. What a staggering thing 
for a Jew to finally come to terms with. Paul says, we get it. By the grace of God now, we get it. And then look at what he goes on to say in verses 17 to 18. Now, these verses are hard to understand. But, but it may be what Paul is saying is that if the Judaizers are right and we are wrong, then by us doing what we've done, fellowshipping with the Gentiles and preaching a justification by faith alone, then we're deceived and we're found to be sinners. And does this mean that Christ is the servant of sin too? Because he certainly challenged Jewish legalism and Peter, he revealed to you in that vision about Cornelius that justification is not on the basis of the law, but by grace. So was Christ also, have we been wrong? And was Christ also wrong in what he taught? Was Christ wrong by giving you the vision you received and the experience you had with Cornelius? Paul says, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Christ is not wrong. It's not that Paul is trying to convince himself. He's trying to get Peter to see how illogical Peter's being. And it's, again, certainly not that Christ was wrong. Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, because he sees that that's what Peter is now doing. It's like he's rebuilding the necessity of the law. So if I rebuild what I tore down, then the only one at fault there is not Christ. But it's you, Peter, or it would be me if that's what I was trying to do. I'm the transgressor, or Peter, you're the transgressor, not God. In other words, I either sinned when I originally tore down the law by preaching the gospel, which is what the opinion of the Judaizers would be, or more likely to Paul's point, I would be the transgressor now if I tried to rebuild the law because through the gospel, I've died to the law. And it may also be as Stott thinks that Paul is responding to the argument that some tried to make that if they did away with the law and only preached Christ, then people who respond to the gospel might live in sin. Paul says, does that mean that we as apostles are living in sin and that Christ would actually lead people to be living lives of sin? Absolutely not. If I live in sin, then I've misunderstood the gospel of grace to begin with. Christ doesn't set us free from the bondage of the law to turn us into sinners. When he justifies us, he changes us from the inside out. If I'm not living the Christian life, the problem is with me. The problem is not with the gospel. Paul says, I died to the law that I might live to God. The Christian, if anything, has a higher standard than the legalist, right? The legalist re relates to the law 
while the Christian relates to the lawgiver, to God. Who's greater, the law or the lawgiver? The lawgiver, of course. So Christian standards, if properly understood, are not lower standards. If anything, they're higher standards. And so there is no fear in preaching Christ and Christ alone. When people understand the gospel, then they'll live by the principle stated in verse 20, that I'm, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives within me. A Christian understands what that is, what that means. And then the big punchline comes in verse 21. Because verse 21 was the error of the Judaizers. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Folks, that's how serious this matter is that the Judaizers are trying to bring into the church. If justification comes through the law, Christ's death on the cross, what he did there, he did for nothing. And so this is the climax to Paul's appeal for some common sense thinking about the gospel. It's like he's saying to Peter and all those who are pulling back from Gentile Christians, Peter, think about it. If the Judaizers are right and these Gentiles need to be justified by the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Why did Christ even come to this earth? If the Judaizers are right, then the whole life and work of Jesus could be called into question. Again, that's the seriousness of the error that the Judaizers are introducing. Some lessons that I want to leave you with tonight. I've got several of them. In fact, five of them. Number one, it's not enough to believe the gospel. We must live it and demonstrate it. We must live it and demonstrate it. Peter wasn't doing that here. A second truth, when the, when the truth of the gospel is at stake, Christians must take a clear stand. Now folks, we all have preferences on gray matters. And in those areas, there needs to be charity. But what's being discussed here, again, is a is an essential matter. Christians must take a stand on essentials, even if they disagree on non-essentials. There are things worth taking a stand for, even if you and I become unpopular in doing so. A third lesson. Public sin that leads others astray needs to be corrected publicly. 
Again, if it's a private matter between you and another believer, if you can settle it that way, settle it that way. Keep it private. If you can't, you know, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18, bring him another witness in. But if you can settle it privately, settle it privately. But if there are public sins and others are being led astray, there's a time and a place that things need to be corrected publicly. A fourth lesson. Even leaders can be led astray. Even leaders can be led astray. And then the last lesson, grace when properly understood will not lead men to sin. We don't need to fear that if we preach grace instead of law that people are going to end up leaping into sin and loving it. If they do, they've not understood grace. Anything you see here that I missed or anything you want to chime think, in with? Do you think by verse 20, 21 that Peter at this point saw the error of his ways? I think he did. Yeah. circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. And so exactly, God's law is written on our heart. So that's why a Christian who properly understands the gospel is not going to leap into sin and love it. So, and and it's, it's because they don't understand the gospel that they would accuse you of that. Ricky has an answer for you. Hold this up, Ricky. Okay, just, uh, really, this is a really tough question. I'm trying to wrap my head around Galatians. Uh -huh. I cannot get my head wrapped around the Judaizers. To what point? Why, why were there Judaizers? What did they hope to accomplish? Was it just tradition? I mean, why are there Judaizers anyway? Because there's so sure. much freedom in Christ. Sure. Why would anybody all of a sudden start making rules? Sure. You want me to answer that? My. Go ahead. I'll give my answer to it. doesn't matter to me. I just want an answer. It was hard even for the apostles to break from traditions that they had had all along, going to the temple and worshiping, giving the sacrifices as well. And it's just like anybody. It's hard to break from tradition. Uh, you get to a place where things are the same way, you like them the same way, and you don't like change. And that's what the Judaizers were. They did not want the change. They didn't understand the change. And so while trying to accept the truth of Christ, they still wanted to pull some of their own traditions in as well. And even the apostles had a hard time with that because they had a hard time breaking from the temple tradition themselves and saying, no, 
we, we really don't have to do it when you when when they were talking to the Gentiles. Now, if I missed something, please go. I was, was going to say much the same thing that I think the Judaizers, on the one hand, saw the truth of the gospel that Christ is the fulfillment of the law, but they couldn't let go of the law and their and, and the, their their traditions and their law. They just couldn't let go of it. something I Joe couldn't understand at first. I was raised in a very legalistic church. And we didn't go to the shows, dance, didn't do any play cards, nothing. Uh, and uh, wear lipstick. <laughs> but anyway, uh, of course, through the years, I've seen how foolish some of that was. But when I'd go back to my hometown, I wouldn't go to a movie. And Joe would say, well, why don't you? I said, because they knew I was Bethel Baptist. And they'd think, what happened to Marlene? <laughs> there she is at the movie. And I felt like I would be causing people to stumble. So I never went to a movie in my hometown. And it wasn't because of legalism. It was because I was afraid of causing. That's you know. where you get into the verses in Corinthians that say that all things are legal, but not all things are beneficial. Yeah, that, that's, I was just convicted I better not. Mm -hmm. 
say, what in the world's happened to Marlene Carlton? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ready to pray? Yes. David, would you get us started with our prayer list? Father God, we come before you tonight with such a um, such a wonderful Bible study and scripture put before us. I marvel at how you over and over and over you address the situations and places that we find in our life that are difficult and we struggle to do the right thing. We go to your word and we can see the right thing. We can understand the, both the pressures that are happening, but also that in doing the right thing, that it gives honor and glory to your holy name. And so, Father, as we come tonight, we, we give you glory. We give you honor tonight. We give you praise. Tonight, I think, particularly, Richard Hample is dealing with cancer and getting a, getting a fantastic report of being cancer-free at this point in life. And Lord, what that means to him and to those around him, we're just grateful that, that he's able to see that. And that's through your grace and through your problems. We look at some of these others. We think of Heidi as she's working at becoming a nurse practitioner. And all the time and years and, and different areas of service that she's had in the medical world. Lord, are you bringing all these things together into a into a, uh, an area of her profession that just, I, I know she's thrilled with the possibility, but also challenged with, with what it means because of the responsibility that's there. And, and Lord, we just we pray for her for the testing that will take place and for uh, the future events as they will unfold. We pray for her family as well. Think, Lord, of others who are sick, uh, injured, dealing with long-term illnesses that are uh, eventually will, will take the body, take the life. And yet, God, you ask us to seek your face and to, and to give acknowledgement to your power and your leadership and your guidance for us. And, and so, Father, even if we get to do that, Help us to look at things around us uh, to the extent that we can through your eyes. And then, Father, help us to share the message of the gospel that the people would see the need. They would see it in, in how our lives have been conducted and what's been said as we've dealt with some of these issues. Lord, we just ask you for your comfort for some. Think of uh, Ms. Bradley. We ask you, Lord, to touch her life think of still others um, that are on that list. Or I think Ed Grimes with us yesterday and dealing with kidney stones. And I know firsthand what that's like. And it, it amazes me. And yet he was there to give God glory and there to, there to give encouragement to the saints that were around him. And for that we're grateful. And we pray for him and his upcoming surgery that it would go well. Pray for Rose Whitley. Pray for Janelle Carroll, Lord. She's in our Sunday school class, and we 
we see the struggle that she's going through. We hear the reports of different things that are happening on a very, very personal level for her. We ask you, Lord, to give her, uh, give her a, um, an extra measure of grace that she might be able to continue to serve and to give honor to you. And that, Lord, you would work in her heart and life and her body and that your perfect will would be done. And we ask these things, all of them, in Jesus' name. Amen. Any others? Father, I think of Revelation 12:11 that talks about how the saints overcome in tribulation says they they overcame by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death they're willing to take a stand for Christ even if it cost them their earthly life reminds me of how Jesus said if we try to save our life, we'll lose it. If we lose it for His sake and the kingdom, we'll save it. God, give us wisdom as to what's important and matters that we can disagree on. But over those essentials, grant us courage. We don't see a great deal of this fortitude and endurance in the church today. God grant it to us that we might stand firm and not compromise in these trying days. Lord, we thank you for the message of this book, Galatians. And it shows us the example of how the Apostle Paul dealt with these matters. And it shows us how he didn't waver. Lord, we've put our hand to the plow. Help us not to waver, to look to the left or the right or behind, but to keep our eyes on, eyes on Christ. May we bring you glory and how we live, what we believe, how we live out our faith, how we testify, the, and the testimony that we give to the world in both word and conduct. May we be found faithful. Lord, we want to pray for these on the board who fully realize themselves that according to doctor's reports, their time, their current time on earth is very limited. I think of Chuck Nobley and Dot Willis in particular. And God, we rejoice that both of these individuals are at peace with that. Because they know that they are in Christ and He in them. They have a peace. They're prepared to meet you. God, I pray the days they do have left that these would be very special days with their loved ones. 
We pray that you continue to bring them comfort. Lord, for those that have been struggling for a long, long time with just debilitating illnesses, not at the point of death necessarily, but they're struggling and very weak. I think of Beverly Braley, um, Janelle Carroll. I think of others like them, Susan Ressler. God, give them strength day by day. Give their doctors and nurses wisdom from above to treat them in the most effective way possible. If they're missing something, Lord, help them to see what they're missing so they can uh, go down a different path with treatment and medications and possibly surgeries. But God, give them that day-to-day -day strength and hope and fortitude that they need. We pray for those on the board in missions, Aaron and Katie Corys and Brandon Brooks, that you just continue to grant direction in their lives. And Lord, as Paul testified that you'd opened a door for him to go into Macedonia, I pray that you'd make the pathway clear for those on mission. We pray for Jeanette that as she struggles with COVID, that uh, you bring healing to her body. And God, we would ask that if possible, hers would turn out to be a very mild case. Give her the rest that she needs. Keep her lungs clear. Um, or just, just strengthen her and heal her. And give her mom and dad peace. If she's in your hands. There's no better place to be than that. Lord, so many needs, many that aren't even on the board tonight. You know each one because you're sovereign God. Take care of the needs of the folks in the flock here. And Lord, you know the open doors you've set before us. And I pray that we would use these days to be about your business. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.